the wrist bones connected to the wrist watch what's up everyone it is wednesday december 7th 2016 and i am your host of this podcast luke thomas this is the promotional malpractice live chitty chat uh today on the podcast we are going to get to of course ufc 206 is on saturday there's also bellator 168 if you can believe it and then there is as well UFC Fight Night Albany on Friday night. Don't know if I'm going to watch that or not, but we'll see. I mean, I'll watch it eventually. I just mean live. Uh, you, we can get to all those topics, plus anything else you want to get to here on the podcast in the world of mixed martial arts and uh, bad movies and bad food. Um, best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. You can also get at me on Twitter at MMA, excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, at SBN Luke Thomas. And you can use the hashtag chat rappers. Uh, that would be a good place to do that. Um, I actually, I've been trying to be better about soda. I haven't had soda in a while, like last weekish. That's a while for me. Got my coffee today. Mmm. Trying to have the coffee a little bit later in the day, but not too late, so that carries me through. We'll see how that goes. Might be a failed experiment. All right. With that out of the way, appreciate you tuning in. Let's get this show on the road, shall we? And I, uh, a bunch of you emailed me for questions, and I put them all, not all, I think uh, I think I put them all, but I put most of them, if not all of them, from the last week anyway, uh, in the comments section. So we'll see how that goes. Let's see. All right. Um, all right. First question. Westworld review. Have you guys been watching Westworld on HBO? I know there's a couple of losers out there panning it, but it's actually a quite good show. Uh, you told your listeners on your SiriusXM radio show weekdays, yes, 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 that you'd go over Westworld and your theories on the Monday show. However, your producers hadn't watched Westworld, so you couldn't really talk about it. What are the twists you saw coming, and what was the twist that you didn't see coming? Overall, what grade would you give the Westworld? I'd give it a B plus, A minus. Um, probably more on the B plus side, but that's, you know, I, I don't, I'm a stingy grader, so B plus is pretty good. Um, I don't know if I can talk about the twists here either because I don't know if you donks have seen it yet. Should I just ruin it for everyone? Uh, well, one of them was about the timeline Dolores is on. I was totally right about that one. And then the other one was about who really is the man in black. And I got that right as well. The twist I didn't see was at the end, the very, very end, like the very last scene. I did not quite anticipate some of the contours of that. Um, you want a more focus on my YouTube channel on weekly reviews, TVs, movie, food? I don't know if people really care about that. Someone has a long post here about the Mobius strip. And the bicameral theory and things like that, you can check it out. It's probably pretty good since people are mocking him for it. Um, let's see, vintage Tommy Toehold. Go to 910 of this link. All right, let's see. 910. Oh, yeah, that's when I was sniffling and sneezing. Yes, I remember that. Uh, okay, fantasy matchup CM Punk versus Floyd Mayweather in MMA. God. God, does uh, CM, does Floyd Mayweather get some time to train? I might actually go CM Punk on that one, only because um, he's much bigger, but I, I'd be nervous the whole time. 
Mark Ramundi versus Ariel Hawani in a BJJ sub only. I think Ramundi trains. So he is certainly outsized, but he might have a little something for him. Would you rather job to CM Punk at WrestleMania? I have no idea what that means. Have Demi and Maya take your back in grappling to the death? I, this is a terrible question. Would you rather see CM Punk teach you old Romero how to wrestle or have Vince McMahon teach you the beauty of pro wrestling? Uh, the first, only because it'd be kind of funny. Uh, McGregor's contract. Dana said recently on UFC Unfiltered Podcast that McGregor's contract is almost up. How likely is it that he doesn't re-sign with the UFC and do you see him promoting his own fights independently? Well, certainly I do not see him doing that, although um, couldn't rule it out. Couldn't rule out him developing a management company. Couldn't rule out um, some kind of carving out allowance to do other things that, you know, and I remember Anderson still wanted to box Roy Jones Jr. and never could and things like that. So uh, maybe there might be some kind of carving out of that. But the reality is, and, and I think McGregor is smart enough to realize this, is that um, it's true that if you just had a UFC where you put any old person at the top of the bill, it won't do all that well. This is a star-driven sport, and he is, I think at this point, pretty firmly the biggest star. So um, he realizes that they need him a lot. But the truth is, like if you could partner with anyone in the space to generate maximum revenue, what would you do? You would do that. It might mean that there's a fundamental change in the way his contract is written or how their arrangement is um, put together. But... Uh, and it's not to say he couldn't be successful on his own. He has reached a level where he probably could. Um, but it's not clear who he would fight. It's not clear um, how that would work, if he'd be interested in that side of things, if he'd want to front the money. Also, I was told he had signed a new deal just prior to the Aldo fight. Um, I need to, I'm not sure. I mean, he says almost up. I'm not sure if that means two or three more fights or, or what that means. But um, I don't think that means it's imminently up. But we'll see. You really want to see Conor McGregor versus some guy out there? I mean, other guys might end end up leaving, but it would take a while. It wouldn't happen overnight. The guy's twenty eight. I suppose it, if if there was this, you know, general and slow exodus out of lightweight and featherweight or welterweight or whoever to go fight him, it could work, but most of those guys are tied up. He'd be facing fairly difficult road ahead in securing any kind of fights that um, I think even he would want. People are debating here. Comparison, if Junior Dos Santos never gave Cain Velasquez a rematch after he TKO'd him, would we have ever seen that monster that he still is? Um... Potentially. True or false? A Diaz brother will hold a UFC belt one day. False. I mean, not impossible, but... Uh, unlikely. But, I mean, they're giving out interim belts that didn't exist for reasons that don't make sense. So who knows? Uh, Glory Collision, someone's asking about. Yeah, uh, this will be on Saturday and during the afternoon, if I recall correctly. Here is the card for that, which apparently is quite good. Certainly at the top, it's better Hardy taking on um, Rico Verhoeven. 
Oh, man. Where's the card for this? And it's on pay-per-view as well. Here we are. Uh, Rico Verhoeven versus Batter Hardy. Nikki Holtzkin versus uh, Cedric Dumbe. Ismail Lant versus Jamal Ben Sadiq. And then uh, there'll be the Super Bantamweight Grand Prix final bout, I think, from earlier in the card. see how that goes will i be watching that uh i don't know we'll see on saturday i got a wife you know all right bjorn rebney oh who went between rico and batter uh i'm not one to pick against rico but you know batter is unpredictable he certainly looks to be in shape i don't know that they have the strictest drug testing regimen in the world of kickboxing um you know We'll see. I, I, I mean, I lean Rico, but um, batter's incredibly unpredictable. Uh, all right, Bjorn Rebney. Hi, Luke. I was just curious because I haven't been in MMA for a long time. I'm just wondering what makes Bjorn Rebney so disliked by other MMA people. Why are they appalled by him working for the Double M Triple A, which is what I'm going to call it for now on. I'm not going to call it the MMAA. I'm not going to list letters uh, like I'm doing Morse code or something. Um Barbus is over there just being a, a retard. Uh, okay. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'll take that back. He's being an idiot. All right. Bjorn Rebney. Um, okay. Why is it... Uh, why are people appalled by him? Uh, people are appalled by him because... A couple of things. Number one, I think you've seen it for this week. Um, There was a fairly okay, so he had a bad run in boxing to begin with. Um, when he came to MMA, it wasn't like he was carrying a ton of baggage in that regard, but he nevertheless, um, he nevertheless, uh, he, he had sort of like fallen out of favor in boxing, I think, to put it mildly. I think he had some deals with Sugar Ray Leonard that had gone bad, and uh, it wasn't like he had a high opinion of him. Now, again, that I think MMA fans were largely clueless about that, but it wasn't like he came in with a sterling reputation or any reputation. In, that folks needed to take seriously at all. I think that was one part of it. Another part of it was um, they had a model that didn't make a lot of sense. It was a tournament model. And I think some people were like, oh, I like that better. And I think some people did like that better. But I think we've all realized that's really not the best way to generate ratings, um, all things being equal. And so there was a lot of complaints lobbied about that. And then I think the real problem was, um, you know, this is true. You know, when he got big enough, he was antagonistic towards the UFC which you can see how that might have uh, played out both in his favor and against him, and that there was a concerted effort. I don't think it was prolonged necessarily, but you, if you're just new to UFC in the last year, you can't appreciate what used to be Dana White's daily things on Twitter or video interviews he would do or... Sorry, Barbara, what are you doing? Um... All the various things he would do. I remember all the, oh, that's effing illegal video against Gary Shaw. He would murder Gary Shaw. Now, Gary Shaw came in with a terrible reputation, or at least a, a mixed one from boxing, but you know he had pretty strong partners. And I think for Bellator, it just kind of felt like it was this, um, it was this over, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was tearing the world up, but you know, it was, it was surviving. The initial model was built to survive. We'll take the site fees from casinos and, 
you know, come here, come here. Okay. This is the guy making all that noise. Here's the point. Somewhere along the way, he started going after the UFC. And the UFC began to return the favor. And I think he got beat up as a consequence of it. There was a little bit of back and forth. He was inviting criticism. They were happy to deliver it. And this was back when Dana White was just absolutely killing people all the time for it. On Twitter, on again, on videos and, and interviews. In the, uh, you know, They have now UFC Embedded. But UFC Embedded basically used to be like before all the big events, they just followed Dana's life around, you know. And they stopped doing that. What I forget what they called those, but in any event, um, so he began to like invite this criticism. But the real turning point was one: the Eddie Alvarez lawsuit. I think two: a lot of guys would leave Bellator and they wouldn't have necessarily favorable things to say about him. And then three: uh, you know, obviously during his time there, uh, King Mo had big problems with him. And you'll recall when he left, it wasn't like there was necessarily this giant flood of people who came out to sing his praises. Now, I wound up speaking to a lot of Bellator staff um, after the fact. And um, I think what a lot of them said was that he was, again, I don't know this to be true or not true. I can only repeat to you what was told to me. But my impressions from talking to them was that it wasn't like he wasn't a dedicated guy to the business. In fact, if they had one really positive thing to say about him, it was that the guy gave everything he had to Bellator. Um, every ounce of uh, his own pocket that he that made sense, every waking moment, every day. Um, he may have had some creative vision problems. He may have had some strategic blunders, but it wasn't that he didn't care, and it wasn't that he was not working overtime, and I mean overtime, to get that done. But that there was he was just a control freak, or that um, you know he was demeaning to some employees. Apparently, just on a personal level, he could have been difficult to deal with. Now. You know, in heaping all that stress on himself, say bye, a Falcor, a Treyu. All right. Um, and heaping all that stress on himself, maybe that contributed to it. But I, I think that that's a huge part of it. In other words, there was, I don't think, I, I hesitate to call it a smear campaign, but Dana White was really effective at making other promoters look bad at a certain time in mixed martial arts. And I think he took advantage of that in that space, although this happened towards the tail end of that. And he did some of that to strike force too, but Coker was, you'll recall, assiduously non-confrontational about it. He would just say, we're doing something different. We appreciate that, you know, but uh, we're not really focused on that. He never, ever went to war with the UFC. And erstwhile, um, you know, was really good about generating some publicity for guys who were disaffected by them, right? Truth is, though, I mean, Coker's done his fair share of things, you know. They released Will Brooks in a way where he couldn't really, um, uh, you know, a small example, couldn't really bargain to get more for his kind of money. Um, you know, it's not as bad as taking Eddie Alvarez to court, but I'm just sort of pointing out that none of these guys have necessarily an impressive record. And I think the other thing for Bjorn was that, and it comes, you still hear it a little bit, right? When he was on MTV, he was like, this deal is magical. I think he always used the word magic or magical. And, you know, it was just this, like, really over-the-top promotion, this really over-the-top language. And it just, he never really caught on with fans. He never really caught on with fans. Dana White, again, for all whatever you think of him, great, evil, somewhere in between, um, there's no doubt that at a certain point, and even to this day, but certainly, I think the, there was a high water mark a few years ago where he had the I mean, he had the fans in the palm of his hand. You know what he said was law. Um, 
And during that time when he was bashing rivals, they just couldn't ever get a leg up. And I think, so it was long story short, Rebney's own style brought this on himself, uh, his own words, some, maybe some of his managerial decisions, um, some of the things he did with the individual fighters, and that he was just sort of, you know, verbally trashed by a very powerful figure who had a, a lot of things to say, you know. Um, th there are guys that Dana White bashed during the time in which Dana White had like this incredible command of the media because he was in the media so much. Um, you know, I don't think their reputations ever recovered. Did like Loretta Hunt's reputation ever recover? Uh, Josh Gross has stuck it out because Josh is an amazing guy, but, um, you know, there's a lot of people that their reputations never recovered. Like if you went to battle with him, um, you had to be very careful about how much you want to push it, you know. I don't think that's very much the case anymore, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, I got this question here, and I got it on my radio show too, and I think I want to answer it. So uh, I'm going to try and make contact with Bjorn this week, so I can have, so I can learn more about it from, from my own um, point of view. I, there's nothing like a personal conversation to get that done, and um, I know he wants to speak as well. So I'm looking forward to having a conversation with him because um, I think one of the things we don't want to do is like was taking. Eddie to court a bad idea. Yeah, it was. I think so. I even asked him at the time. I was like, do you like that you are legally able to go white knuckle with Eddie is a different question than whether or not that makes sense. Like you have a chance to curry favor with the fan base and you are doing the very things that will guarantee that you won't. Don't you think that's a bad idea? And at the time he was like, Absolutely not. It's not a bad idea at all. You know, we have to protect our business. I was like, Okay, well, protect it. But um, you're going to damage a lot of things in the process. Let me make sure everything's okay here. Yeah, let's see. Okay. Um, but so I was asking about Rebney's interview in the MMA Hour, and I got this question. I got this question on my radio show yesterday, I think, which is when it comes to uh, analyzing the untrustworthiness of a source, Rebney seems to tick all the boxes. He has clear reason for ulterior motive, and he was extremely emotional, using extremely emotional language while discussing the UFC. It comes across as bitterness towards Dana and Lorenzo as opposed to benevolence to fighters. Yeah, I got this question yesterday. And so my point is, there's a here's the truth. Even if he has antipathy towards the UFC, that's still, that still in part, and I think in substantial part, overlaps with wanting to do the best thing for fighters. Right? There is, it's because we make this comment, it's like getting fighters what they want is not necessarily about FU UFC, and that's true. Um, what's really about getting fighters what they want and what they need and what they deserve is a passion for the fighters themselves. That is really what this boils down to. It is, it is belief in who they are and a belief in what they contribute and a belief in studying the larger market and what's, uh, how the arrangements work and divvying up the, the fair share. But it's also true that to an extent, and this is limited, to an extent, an FU attitude towards the UFC can encompass um, some ways of promoting fighters' interests. I think ultimately it will backfire. I think it won't actually get the full depth and breadth of things needed to cover the uh, interests of fighters. 
But if you really wanted to launch a campaign against the UFC, could you do it through a fighters union or association? Uh, I think you could start that way. I think that'd be one way to to potentially uh, skin that cat. Um, and I think we have to open ourselves to that possibility. I don't know that that's really ultimately what gets Bjorn Revenue op- up in the day. Maybe it is. Uh, maybe I'll get some clarification on this from when I speak to him later. But um, you're not the only person who's noticed that. I'll put it that way. Uh, all right. This was emailed to me. Uh, double M, triple A question. Is it Bjorn Rebney's history as a promoter or is it his personality that's a problem for people? A little bit of both. As it seems to me, his personality is the reason why he was chosen for the role and how different would people's reaction be if it was Coker playing the same role. I don't... Um, also, how awesome would it be if Hughes and Liddell joined the association? Well, that's not going to happen. But... Um, There's a little look. Why is Spike and Bellator promoting themselves as fighters first? They don't actually offer comprehensive or in any kind of not comprehensive, I should say. But they don't even offer accident insurance to their guys. Pay rates there are, uh, on average, lower. Um, even at the high end, they don't match with the UFC. Does like on it's easier to get a big paycheck in the UFC than it is. You know, I shouldn't say that necessarily. Uh, it can be a lot easier to get a big paycheck in the UFC. Bigger paychecks in the UFC are handed out more often. Certainly, I can say that. Um, more sense to go to Bellator, which we've discussed a thousand times. But like, if, if you're Scott Coker and you're Spike, why would you want to label yourselves as fighters first? Is it because they wake up and they're like, oh my God, I just can't sleep without thinking about fighters? I don't think it, it is. And I don't blame them. I don't expect them to. That's deeply unrealistic. It's done because we are living in an age where we have this one promoter, this one entity that has an extraordinary amount of control um, over the market and over the uh, assets of the market and um, whatever you make of that control. And as a way to dif- not only differentiate themselves, but a way to make themselves attractive, um, they are doing this fighter's first bit. And it's not merely that. It's at a time when there is the most amount of disaffection I've ever seen in the ranks among fighters ever. Five years ago, fighters did not speak out like this, ever, ever. It didn't happen. Certainly seven or eight years ago, this was unthinkable. Um, You know, think about the time of UFC 100. Were fighters speaking out like this? No. Some were, and then they were trashed and and thrown aside. Um, it, it, It was never like this. So you're talking about a time where there is record levels of vocal public anyway, discontent. It's a time when you're trying to attract talent. It's a time when you're trying to attract names. I'm not I'm not here to suggest that Coker is a dishonest promoter. He's not. But most guys who deal with him have a really positive thing to say about him. I do think he tries to do right by the vast majority of guys that he does business with. This is not I'm not imputing his character. However, he's not Mother Teresa. And neither is Dana White and neither is Bjorn Rebney. None of any of these guys. They're businessmen. Some run a different kind of business than others. Some run a kind that is more appealing to the people who work for them than others. But it, 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 that's that's what he is. So like everyone's like, oh, would the, the MMA Association would be better if it was Coker? Like Coker has probably, I, I, mean, I can't speak for him. But as I understand, it was never even approached about this job, even though uh, Tim Kennedy seemed to suggest otherwise. But his people deny it. And... Uh, He's a businessman. Don't ever forget it. He might be a businessman that runs a better business, 
but he's a businessman. Um, that's what he is fundamentally at heart. And he's done some things that fans have not liked. All right. So just be, let's not forget about that. Um, also, you know, look, I don't, I thought it was a strategic mistake to put Bjorn Rebney out there in these pictures and stuff. I didn't quite, I didn't quite understand the value of that, but, um, I Tim Kennedy's explanation of like why you would want Bjorn Rebney on staff makes a ton of sense. A guy who essentially knows the space, he knows the ways in which the promoter's job is um, not really essential to the business, but the, what the promoter does specifically in in fostering partnerships and how they understand um, ticket sales and ticket vendors. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on of all the things that they have to know and what they know and the points of sale and and you get it. Like he really offers a tremendous amount of knowledge in that regard. I mean, there's how many guys have promoted MMA on a national level for a sustained period of time? Bjorn Rebney, Scott Coker, Ray Seffo, Dana White. Do you want to say Gary Shaw? I mean, that was in a different era. That doesn't really count. The IFL guys, Gary Sheamus, that doesn't really count. It was a different era. Um, Tom Atencio doesn't count. For sure doesn't count. You know, uh, maybe you could say Reed Harris with WEC. Maybe you could say that. Um, it, 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 that, that's it. That, that's the list of guys. Like, there's not a whole lot of other guys. So... In that sense, Bjorn Rebney is um, a little bit of a unicorn that they they can latch onto. And I think as a lawyer, when he speaks in these other meetings with these people who are, you know, tangential or at least you know half into the MMA space, the Monster Energy Drinks, the Ticketmasters, the whoever, he probably comes off as quite convincing and knowledgeable. I can see him being very, very uh, helpful in that regard. It's just that MMA fans don't necessarily buy his buy who he is. Uh, worst fighter of the year. With so much talk of the fighter of the year, would you agree that RDA had the worst 2016 of any UFC fighter considering where he was in January to where he is now? Well, I mean, worst fighter, I mean, that's especially, I mean, you mean which elite fighter had the most disappointing year? Uh, we could do that one. We could do that one. Chris Wybin would certainly be on the list, I think, for that one. Um, RDA probably would be on the list for that one, although he had an, I mean, what was his. I apologize for uh, Barbus over there. He's driving me crazy. Who I'm going to throw out the window when this chat is over. Yeah, here's the 2016 for uh, Dos Anjos. Lost his title in July. Remember, he was supposed to fight McGregor before that. That fell through. And then lost to Tony Ferguson. So he had a rough 2016. 2016 was not kind to this guy. Uh, Dos Anjos was, was expected to face Conor McGregor in March. So he missed out in the McGregor fight in March, lost his title in July, and then got whooped up on last month. That's a tough year. Um, but but when you ever say worst year, I mean, I mean, there might be some amateur fighter there that lost four times this year or something, you know. But if we're talking about, like, which elite fighter had, um, you know, from the point they were at at the end of 2015 to where they are now, who had the biggest decline? certainly, you know, losing a belt and then losing the subsequent title and then losing out on an extraordinary economic opportunity. Um, yeah, they probably hurt. They probably hurt real bad. Um, who else would you guys count? Chris Weidman had a bad one. Um, Eddie Wineland had a bit of a rebound year. Um, Javel Dos Anjos. Who's had a really tough year? Uh, Ronda Rousey had a tough year, and she didn't even compete. Who else would, would you guys say? 
Someone says, to be fair, Mother Teresa wasn't much of Mother Teresa. Yes, I know, Christopher Hitchens, about the debatable nature of the altruistic endeavors and aims of Mother Teresa. But just work with me here, please. Someone says, there's a definite change in Dana's behavior pre-corporate UFC and post-corporate UFC. wonder if that continues. I don't know how much it'll change from today, but um, this should not surprise you. This is a world where there is no free lunch. There is no free lunch. What you say matters. And again, every, not everything you say is going to be wisdom. Lots of things you say are going to be wrong. Lots of things you say are going to be intemperate. Lots of things you're going to say are going to be um, misconstrued, poorly worded. You, you, that's just the problem of... of um, being a public figure and having to say things in the course of your job. Better to just be a, uh, behind the scenes in, in some ways. Um, but the things he was doing where he was taunting opposition, where he was being um, could not stop cursing. Um, and again, I've got my fair share of uh, ridiculous things I've said in my life too. I am, I am no means above it. But he was playing with fire back in the day. And as the winds of change began to hit, and the fighters began to realize we can use some of these statements against him. It became quite clear he couldn't do that anymore. This this was sort of like I think some of the things leading into the UFC fighter lawsuit at the time. He of course blamed it on MMA media, like oh they always take what I say and um, misconstrue it. It's like did they misconstrue it for low those many years when you kept doing it? I mean, if anything, if there's any criticisms to make of the MMA media, is that they were stenographers, not that they were challenging him. But in any event, that's just a, a cover for the fact that those statements were then cobbled together and used in that fighter lawsuit. Like, you can't just get away with saying things like that, at least not for very long. All of it will come back. All of it. All of it. And it did. Now, in the end, that lawsuit may ultimately fail. I don't know. But certainly it provided them a level of ammunition that they wouldn't ordinarily had. And, you know, everyone's like, why do these, you know, I remember there was this big debate like, oh, Dana, why does it so refreshing? And I think to a lot of people that it was. You know, it really was refreshing to some extent to have a guy go out there and go, you know what, that you know what I think about that guy? Fuck that guy. You know, something like that. They're like, oh, yeah, this is this is how we talk in our living rooms, and that's true. For a while there, it feels really great, but at the end of the day, um, there's a reason why the most successful ones don't do that. And the reason why is because all of that will come back to haunt you. Everyone loves the tough guy shtick, you know. And I'm not saying it was shtick. Maybe that is how he is. But, uh, but, but like, everyone loves that at least – veneer or not they love it uh for a time but in the end it just you you grow seeds of of discontent and when power structures change and when realities change all of those things that were done to put distance between a person to demean an entity they will all come back they will all come back and so um i understand every once in a while we want to just we crave that level of honesty but that's how not that's not how we're built up here and it's certainly not how we're built from a litigation standpoint we are built to inventory the things people say and uh either promote that for our own causes or use that to prosecute a case against someone especially someone with a lot of money who is operating in a system that some de deem to be unfair so always remember that always remember like there's a reason why roger goodell doesn't go out there and go god you know what i think about tom brady and this deflate gay thing, I think they're both loser bums, and I changed their bum life or, or whatever, whatever he wanted. There's a reason why he doesn't do that, because that would be a very bad 
very bad call. You might find it refreshing if you didn't already hate Roger Goodell, but you, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Doesn't happen. Not for me, not for you, not for anyone. And uh, there you go. All right, let's keep it going. Holloway versus Pettis. All right. Look, who do you think wins? I think Max Holloway wins, but I don't really know. Uh, I feel like Max will beat Anthony, okay? And then we'll do so against Jose Aldo, and we'll defend the title multiple times Jesus. Uh, afterwards, even if Connor goes down to challenge him. I think Max is one of the few fighters who can adjust properly to beat the kind of style that McGregor brings. Well, we'll see. I, the Jose Aldo part, I, don't, I mean, let's, let's not let's not get that far. Um, but just stick with this. I, I, I think um, if Holloway can sort of use that trade, use that trademark movement, and he's really good, really good about figuring out which weapons a person's going to use. Um, and and this sounds sort of like this isn't very specific, but he just simply takes them away from you. I, I, you have to watch it in real time to to, to see it. But um, even from it could be a, something as small as a stand switch. But he, here's my thing about uh, Holloway. He starts out here and then slowly gets in here. In other words, he doesn't mix it up and then retreat to kickboxing range. He starts at way far away and then slowly finds his way inside. Now, if he sees an opening, he'll take it. That's not to say he doesn't throw anything but kickboxing range strikes, but but he generally has this approach where he closes distance only over time, only as it makes sense. Um, and then as he really begins to pour it on, he might go for a takedown, he might go for mount, that kind of thing. But he likes to start at a very safe distance and make adjustments from there and then slowly work his way inside. And I think for a guy like Anthony Pettis, um, who might be a little bit more willing to come forward, who might be a little bit more willing to throw different ranges in different ways, try to mix it up in that kind of way. And again, the whole time Pettis is mixing it up, but I'm sorry, Holloway's mixing it up, but he mixes it up at a very safe space at, at first anyway. I just, I feel like it's a bit of a bad matchup, but look, you know, but what if Pettis goes in there and just leg kicks him to death and, and, and Holloway has no answer. That wouldn't surprise me either. But if I just forced to make a bet, I just feel like the guy who operates in a way where he puts the fight, he like he, You've in in this what eight nine fight win streak that he's on. When was the last time you saw him fight out of a disadvantage? Like almost never. He never puts himself in positions where he has to like fight out of a deficit, either because someone has his back or he's rocked and he or he's getting backed up when he doesn't want to get back. You almost you like you just never see it. He fights in these incredibly diverse and safe ways, and yet stays active enough on offense to just keep guys tripped up. Uh, it's incredible what he's able to do. And I don't know that Pettis is going to have an answer to that, especially as it goes late. Oh, I got, are they cowling me? Uh, let's see. Hold on just one second. Sorry about this. I got this dude coming over to help me film this thing in studio today. All right. Okay, another question from the inbox. Would the UFC attract more viewers with an earlier start time so the main event started around 11 instead of 1? I couldn't get any of my friends interested in watching UFC 205 with me because the event ran so late. My friends are casual fans and watch the occasional car, but the length of the late start of 205 turned them off. 
I believe the UFC's oversaturation problem extend beyond too many events to the events that are too long. Am I wrong in thinking the structure of UFC events is turning away viewers? Is the late start typical in another pay-per-view sport, i.e. boxing? There's no other sport that goes as late as this one that I'm aware of, at least in the United States. I realize that everyone, and every time you say something like this, everyone in the UK is like, bro, we don't start watching fights till 6 a.m. It's like, that's cool, man, but this is a U.S.-based company. Like they they may do shows in the UK, but it's a it's an American company, right? So like, we have the right of first refusal on this one. Uh, and yeah, going till one one thirty is just it's insane. But um, uh, no, uh, well Mayweather had some pretty late ones. I remember the second Maidana fight was like unbearably long, or maybe it was the first Maidana fight where they didn't they didn't start that fight until midnight or something. But um, or even past that, maybe maybe like twelve thirty, something insane. But uh, but to answer your question, um, there's a heavy West Coast audience that is a big component of the um, fight game, which you just can't really. I'm not saying they couldn't end things a little bit earlier. I think getting past one o'clock is really just over the over the line. But the point being is, they have flirted many times with having events that ended earlier. Or you know, start like for example, at that, that time they had pay per view starting at like uh, nine p.m., and they just didn't get the kinds of returns on that that they wanted, and they went pretty quickly right back to the ten p.m. start time, and that's fine. I just feel like um, part of this is exacerbated by those fight nights. I I wouldn't mind if it, I mean UFC two hundred five did gangbusters, so like your friends weren't able to come over, but the vast majority of people who wanted to watch that fight did. They were not turned off by these facts. That's the other part. Um, I think this problem is just exacerbated because Fox Sports 1 just basically tortures their audience. They don't care about – I mean, they care about their audience in terms of being able to sell all the ad inventory that they have. But putting six fights on a main card, starting at 10 o'clock and going until 1, 1.30. Like, if you don't – here's how crazy a Fox Sports 1 event is. If you don't set your DVR automatically to go at least 30 minutes past the normal recording window, it's almost a certainty you'll miss the main event. Think about that. Like it won't even like you won't even catch half the main event. You'll just miss it. You might might get around. It's it's just bananas. It's bananas is what it is. It's completely unfair to the viewership. But what are they supposed to do? You save the best for last. You're just stringing them along the whole time. And there's no real easy answer because no one hates FS1 broadcasts enough to not watch the FS1 broadcast because of what's at the, usually at the top of it. Um, but so they, so they've got you by the balls on this one. Unfortunately, I think if it went back to the days where it was FX, where they were starting at nine and it was a four fight card, they were done around 11, 1130. This was, this was magic. This was at the words of Bjorn Rebney, it was magic. Um, that's what we need to get back to, or at least five fight cards starting at nine. I think that would be a little bit more moderate, but when you got a low rated network that needs those viewers for those live events coming back. You got to keep them there as long as possible. You got to sell as much ad inventory as possible, and they're not really going to walk because it's a special kind of fan base with, frankly, a special kind of loyalty. There you go. Someone says uh, 46% of the American population lives in the Eastern time zone. While well, 17% live in the Pacific zone, I don't understand catering to the West Coast. Uh, you don't see NFL starting at Super Bowl at 10 p.m. Um, no, you don't. Um, but that's a little bit different. Super Bowls are on Sundays, for starters. Uh, 
Um, second of all, I think that there is a unique portion of the MMA viewing audience that is um, to the West. I, I, just, I'm not saying things can't be amended, that they should be amended. Again, I think going past 1230 is kind of like, like, come on, fellas, what are we doing here? But um, I don't think that the entire MMA industry is confused. I think that they're doing this because it works. Oh, someone wrote me an email that I wanted to read on the air. And it was bone to pick with MMA media. So this is what he says. I noticed after the Demetrius Johnson fight on Saturday, a lot of media members decided to direct their attention onto how Mighty Mouse drew the smallest attendance of the year and used, and used that to make a story about his unpopularity. Here's an example. Blah, 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 blah. It says, Tough 24's finale gate. 188 grand and attendance 2044 are both the lowest of any UFC event in 2016. Why this annoys me is because the Palms Casino Resort is a small venue that only holds about 2,000 fans. DJ versus Elliot actually drew the fourth highest attendance in the UFC Palms Casino Resort history and was just 27 shy of what Anderson Silva drew there for the uh, Team Lesnar versus Team Dos Santos. For now. No, excuse me, of the uh, Silva versus Irving fight, which was 2074. 71, I'm sorry. The highest was the Ultimate Fighter US versus UK finale, which was 2,217. Um, I just get annoyed because when numbers get posted with no context or manipulating context, I start to see MMA fans run with the story saying, see, no one cares about Demetrius. In this case, it's not true. On top of a solid attendance, the TV ratings came out and the show turned out to do pretty well. So, ah, there you go. Um, want to know about that by the way uh um let's see here i got i got i spoke i sort of heard from this um pharmacist about the things that Remember, this is the guy that wrote me about Chad Mendez. He also wrote me about, or she, well, no, it's he, wrote me about um, John Jones on the uh, Joe Rogan experience. Here's what he says. They kept referring to clom clomiphene or clomiphene, whatever, as an estrogen blocker, which it is not. Estrogen blocker is the common name for a group of drugs called aromatase inhibitors, drugs like anestrozolol, Letrozole, or whatever they pronounce these stupid words, letrozole. Uh, clomiphene is an anti-estrogen or selective estrogen receptor modulator, or CERM. In men, they basically do the same thing, increase the body's testosterone production. So this isn't the most egregious vocabulary error, error ever. However, clomiphene wouldn't help you get an erection, at least not as fast as Cialis would. You'd have to be taking it daily for a couple of weeks to see an increase in testosterone, as more testosterone would help with libido than actual uh, dick function. Pardon my language. There were a few other things that didn't make sense to me in John's story. First of all, he referred to the pill as off-brand Cialis. If you know any other older gentleman with erectile dysfunction, you may be aware that there is no generic or off-brand versions of any PDE5 inhibitors, aka dick pills. Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, all those babies have their patents in full force, making them very expensive and older men very angry. I think he was just sort of like referring to it in a generic sense. 
This doesn't mean that you can't get your gas station or off the internet in some sort of sketchy Chinese dick pills. You can. This is what I assume was the case with John until he said something otherwise. He said he got his stuff through a friend's girlfriend who was a pharmacist, which to me implies it was some sort of behind-the-counter formulation. Like I mentioned before, uh, with uh, Mendez, the FDA regulating this stuff, it's not going to happen. If John would have said he got it at the gas station, the story would be very plausible. The fact that USADA checked the product and confirms the story of contamination makes me know that something like this is what really happened. If clomiphene was found in an FDA-regulated product, it would be major news. There would be recalls. I have heard nothing. I don't know why John would say something about how he got the stuff. If you assume that pharmacists' part is true, it would have to be some sort of supplement this pharmacist got for him, not an actual medicine. Also, there aren't many pharmacists willing to throw away a six-figure job and eight-year education and risk jail time to help their boyfriend get boyfriend's friend get an erection by stealing behind-the-counter drugs. I think that's happened, just saying. I'd like to clarify that I think almost all MMA fighter stories of accidental ingestion are plausible, including John's, and I believe the vast majority of them. I think John just fudged some details to make it more easy to follow and not sound as bad. Gas station dick pills having clomiphene and Cialis in them does not surprise me at all. People like to think that the culprit is unwashed machinery leading to contamination. That's very unlikely. In the unregulated supplement world and when dealing with stuff from foreign countries, the explanation is more likely that they just put some extra stuff in there to make it work better. It makes sense to put steroids in creatine and a testosterone booster in a sexual performance drug. Donks take the stuff and say, wow, this really works. And the company's sales go up. To this day, in my mind, the only confirmed cheater who had intent to gain an edge was, and this is his opinion, Mendez. I know uh, Rogan brought it up today again on the podcast saying Chad's story was confirmed. Makes me think, <laughs> this is his words, not mine. Makes me think he eats yellow mustard on his well-done steaks. If Mendez's story were true, textbooks would have to be rewritten. There's a reason Mendez didn't challenge it and all these other athletes have. If you ever see him, let him know what's up. There you go. That is one pharmacist to you donks. There you go. Okay, from the inbox. I have been left pondering how one may able to beat DJ after his great performance last weekend. I was brought to an interesting thought and just want to bounce it off of you. So, we saw that DJ was in trouble early as he was struggling to find his rhythm. And to your point, after he gets past that, he becomes nearly unbeatable. He finds the way to win, then consistently applies it. So, that makes me wonder, if a guy similar to Max Holloway would be the type of... Oh, excuse me, would a guy like Max Holloway be the guy to beat a guy like Johnson? I'm not saying that Max is the guy to do it, nor am I contemplating that fight, as Holloway is simply too big. However, as you have stated, he has the ability to change and make adjustments throughout the entire fight. Do you believe that a 125-pound fighter that has the ability to put pressure on DJ early then consistently change his approach is the key to beating Johnson, who has the ability to find the one crack in the fighter's armor and picking it apart? Yeah, that's certainly one way to do it. We don't see this at flyweight, but you could get a Habib Nurmagomedov type who would just be too big and too strong and too – he's not so big necessarily. I'm just saying so dominant in one or two – I would say for for Habib, sort of two general phases of the game, that they could just apply that. We don't see anyone like that in that flyweight division currently, but sure, like as good as Demetrius is, he's not like otherworldly level grappler. He's a very good one, but he's not like, oh, my God, one. Right. Um, we've seen him as a striker. He's a very good one, but he's not like, holy crap one. He's amazing in the clinch. That would be a little bit harder to see someone who could just tear him up in the clinch like that. But um, you get the idea. Like it, it also is possible that someone may just come along and have 
mastery of one or two phases of the game to just absolutely crush him. That 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 seems at least um, possible, uh, although not at the temporary or, or at the moment in time, um, uh, highly unlikely. But the other option simply might be that um, uh, what you've articulated here, that a guy who can find a way to win in, in ways and then change it up and keep Demetrius Johnson guessing the whole time, yeah, I think that would be that would be uh, uh, one possibility. It's just when you look around in the same scenario I just posited, someone who has extraordinary mastery of some of the phases of the game, this person doesn't exist. You know, they just don't exist. Uh, I, no one's unbeatable. No one's unbeatable. I think we saw that last weekend. We've seen it any number of different times. But if you're asking like who can beat Demetrius Johnson, it's either someone who's got one ace in the hole that he just doesn't have, uh, who he can't answer for. Or someone who is just keeping him guessing through their own um, uh, adjustments, sort of giving him his own medicine a little bit. But it, whoever that is is going to be quite good. Or he just ages out and can't keep up, and he just gets you know bulldozed. Something like that might happen too. Uh, okay. Bunch of these have like two recommendations. What's next for Nick Diaz? Jesus, who the hell knows? It has been relatively quiet around Nick lately. What fights would you most like to see him in? Lawler, GSP, Condit, Anderson Silva, Cowboy, Belfort, Connor, Lawler, yes. GSP, no. Oh, they might do that because I know GSP is pining for that one. Condit, no. Silva, no. Cowboy, yes. Belfort, sure. Connor, why not? Oh, you know what? This one didn't get erects, but I want to get to it. Um, if we take Cyborg's latest claims about her weight cut at face value, then it's fair to say she has been trying to cut too much water weight and cannot make 135 in her current condition and likely never will. I'll say that's basically correct, but not really. It's fine. However, we should also not demand women who can make that weight comfortably go up in weight to fight her. If they want to, that is their choice but we don't uh, make demands on men going up in weight class until they've completely cleared out their division. If none of the top women at 135 want to go to face her and the UFC truly wants to make a 145-pound title, then who is there for Cyborg to fight? Invicta is thin on the ground for talent and no one there seems to be ready to face her. Where are these 145ers which would make up the division? Okay, so this is an interesting question. Um, number one, uh, you know, obviously we've got Charmaine Tweet, I think, going up against Megan Anderson here in, what, January, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think either of them are ready for Cyborg, but the point about building a division is, look, Cyborg, and I think we just have to accept this, is so vastly ahead of her time. There is no short-term solution to her problem. It, you know, um, it just doesn't exist because you got Holly Holm, who's like, yeah, I'd fight her at one thirty-eight, but they all know that that's sort of ridiculous. That she can, I mean, it's not gonna, it's not ridiculous. I mean, I understand it, but it's just, it's not ridiculous for Holly Holm to not want to fight her above one thirty-eight. I'm saying it puts us in a ridiculous situation where we're trying to like find a weird weight for this to work because. Um, they seem fairly reluctant to go about doing it, and you can understand why. She's just ahead of her time. That's just the reality of it. The question is, if you erect her as a champion, um, and presumably she'll keep winning for the foreseeable future, how much can you, in the process of doing so, build an actual division behind her so that when she leaves, it can then carry on on her own? I wonder if that might be worth it. I wonder. I wonder if like by, by 
saying we have a 145 pound division, if that might make promoters across the country more willing to make 145, if that might recruit more women who would be in that weight class, and then over time you can begin to do something about it. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it would fall on its face. That's a very real possibility. But um, I just think at this point it's worth trying. And the reason why it's worth trying is, one, for the reasons I just mentioned, that it could lead to some kind of relative blossoming of that weight class, although you know there's reasons to think it wouldn't, but I'm just saying. But the other reason is this, like, I think it's just time that if if you were out there, and I said this yesterday, and I really think it's important to reiterate, if you were one of the people out there who was saying, you know, Cyborg can just make 135, all she has to do is just run more and eat less. It's time you admit that that was just a total fantasy. It was a conspiracy theory, and it was never true. Now, there is probably some argument to make that if she sat down with UFC brass and was like, okay, I'm in on this plan to make 141st and then work my way down to 135. She does bear some culpability for that. You know, if you're telling people you can do something uh, and either you know you can't or it became apparent to you at some point that, okay, this is just not possible, it's incumbent upon you to A, say as much, and then B, articulate some responsibility. And so I think she's done the former but not quite the latter. So if you wanted to make that claim, I'd be okay with it. But here's the reality. I think she said that in part because she realized that was, at the time, really her only possibility to getting a big fight, to getting in the UFC. She may have agreed to something that she knew she couldn't do just because that was really her only ticket in. Bit of a Trojan horse. I'll go in on these terms and I'll be able to get these things in the end. And you might call that duplicitous, but it's also, I mean, it seems to have worked, right? Um, Or maybe it wasn't. I don't know exactly what the nature of their talks were, but here's my point. It was pretty clear all along that she couldn't make it. Right, she was. She has to like. I do a very serious cut to make one forty-five. Now she can manage that, but she can do it. And in trying to push her down, when she was saying over and over again, "I don't think I can do this," when it dawned on her, when she was quite public about it, um, and making her go to one forty, it damaged her so badly. It cost her so much physically. Pardon me. <clears throat> Your boy's got allergies. That. By the time she is now done with that venture and they're offering her 145-pound fights, she's so ravaged by the destruction that even on a what is basically a relatively normal timeline, 8 to 10 weeks, that's pretty normal, if not actually pretty good, uh, she can't even take it because that's how much damage she has done in the pursuit of nothingness. It's time. It's time. I pour out a 40 for cyborg 135 pound bantamweight truthers because it's finally over it 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 was never really real um it never made sense to me and i think we need to take account of that like in a world we're trying to do more to get rid of weight cutting the only person we were doing that opposite for was cyborg we're all moving this direction and pushing her that direction she might bear some responsibility for jumping on the sailboard but boy we were behind the sale, weren't we? Um, it, it's grotesque, and it should never happen again, and it was totally wrong from the get-go. If the UFC didn't want to have a 145-pound division, and they still don't, depending on what, how things go, it's absolutely within their right to say that. I mean, it's their company. They're, 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 they can and will do what they want. Um, but it was so bizarre the way her body was policed. It was so bizarre the way we held over a... a, a a fairly ancient infraction uh, that she paid for 
and that there is this belief, man, USADA is cleaning up the sport, except when it comes to Cyborg, because she's just still tap dancing in front of him while she's shooting up, apparently. You know, I don't know what you think of USADA if you think they're working except for her, you, that you don't think that they're working. Um, that's what they do for all the people who they claim are still cheating. Oh, they're just cheating under their noses. I mean, I'm sure some people are, but, you know, you're telling me this this program is the best one. You know, they're not catching her. How come? Oh, um, steroid benefits last late into someone's uh, athletic development, right? Well, all those studies are based on mice. So that might be true, but it might not be true. So we don't really actually know to what extent there is actually real benefit, which I brought up before. We don't actually know to what extent people benefit from performance sensing and drug use and mixed martial arts, but that's a different argument. Um, anyway. If you were one of these people who were out there pumping this line and and doing this like armchair dietitian thing, all she has to do is just run more and eat some kale. Okay, you're part of the problem. And look, I've been wrong about a thousand things. I will continue to be wrong about a thousand things. And every time I am, you guys call me out on it, which is which is good. Keeps me honest, keeps the conversation honest. That's what we want. We want that ability to have that kind of thing happen. But it has to work both ways. If you are out there doing it, you need to just acknowledge it was wrong. And not only was it wrong, it was a giant, giant waste of everybody's time, including the UFCs. It was a waste of their time. And now we have our 145, and we can't even get that going on a reasonable timeline because of the extraordinary damage caused as a consequence. I had Chris Lieben on my show talking about how he's on thyroid medication the rest of his life because of the damage he did from weight cutting. Did he even do anything like she did? All right. Uh, what's the buzz on the Fighters Association, the double MMMAA? It's been a week since Rebney and Co.'s big announcement, and what and who they are is still a little vague. It's true. I haven't really heard any fighters coming out in public and giving their 100% support. I think Cole Miller did. If I'm not mistaken. Have you heard what the vibe is amongst fighters off the record? Some of the ones I've spoken to have been really positive about it. I don't know if they're going to join. Uh, they didn't divulge those details. But the ones I've spoken to in the past week or so seem very excited about it. Um, what are your thoughts on the MMA, or the double M, triple A, one week deep? You know, I thought... Um, okay. So there were some criticisms of them that I didn't understand. To be sure, there are criticisms to make. I think the three biggest are, one, the, the role of Rebney. I think while we can all understand his um, contribution to the organization makes sense, it does carry some baggage. Number two, is this a proxy war between um, CAA and WME being played out through MMA association slash unions? Um that's another concern. And the third concern is essentially their approach as association versus union. Um, certain ones confer certain benefits, right? I think with the PFA, we all knew they wanted to get certified by the NLRB, and then they would work out a collective bargaining agreement that would allow them to strike, but it would protect the UFC from, uh, or it would, it would provide them antitrust exemptions. Associations don't exactly do that, but they may become a union at some point. Uh, they want to strike a deal as an association and then become a union, but that would create some problems with the lawsuit. I mean, it's, it's, there's a variety of different approaches here that don't quite make sense. So the other one here is sort of the fuzziness, not of their purpose necessarily, but their strategy. Those are the three major criticisms you can make, I think, of um, what 
what they have done in the first week. Um, sort of what I think is a reasonable criticism. I saw some of the criticisms like, well, they only had five fighters up there. It's like, okay, uh, what do you want them to have? Do you think they're just going to go behind the scenes and get 100 people to sign up for this? And how would that work? Like, it's, it's a miracle that they got the ones that they did. I'm talking about it because it's a miracle that they did that. It is a miracle that they've got Donald Cerrone, who is an active UFC fighter. It's a miracle that they got Tim Kennedy, an active UFC fighter, two guys from Jackson's. It's a miracle that they got Cain Velasquez, a former UFC heavyweight champion at AKA, and and George St. Pierre. I mean, that's this is this is an insane level of achievement. And they that's they realize that's good enough to then turn the corner and then go into whatever phase two of their operation might be, or whatever phase number it is in their own mind. But let's say publicly phase two anyway. Um, found that criticism of them to be quite hollow. To be almost ridiculous, to be to be fair, um, I think if you're going to have one, it's on the first three, not anything else, or maybe something minor. But on the positive side, I mentioned they just got those guys, and um, they appear quite serious about forcing the UFC's hand, and they're better about generating media. And there's a lot of reasons to think that they might be a little bit different. So, I want to ask a Real Madrid question, and someone else got real mad about it, so I'm going to ask answer the Real Madrid question. Look, with their central midfield trio. Trio. I mean, they got more than a trio. Offensive fullbacks. Yes, they do. Dynamic wingers. Yes, they are. Do you agree that Real Madrid have the most diverse and effective tech in soccer football? Well, I don't watch hardly any other team, so it's hard for me to say. I basically only watch Real Madrid and who they play. Um, but like, just go through their midfield for just a second, and you, you could sub guys in here. So of course, Hamas, but you know he doesn't play that much these days, um, which is ridiculous. But it's another story. I mean, where do you want to go? Kovacic, Cruz, Modric. Um, Isco, um, you could plug in if you wanted to. You could plug in Asensio. Um, uh, who am I? I mean, I'm, this is not even half the the guys who couldn't be in the midfield space. Uh, it's an insane level. Who's uh, who's on the starting one? Let's see. Let's see who's starting today. Let's see. Just because it made that person mad, I'm going to do this. Here we go. announced the starting lineup for the BVB game. Let's see. Here's the lineup. Keylor Navas, Carvajal. Carvajal's a beast. Sergio Ramos, Veron, Ronaldo, Benzema, Hamas. Oh, Hamas is starting. Marcelo, Casem, Casem, how I forget about Casemiro. Lucas Vazquez, another great winger. Modric, they don't even have Bale right now. Then on the bench, you got Kiko Casilla, Pepe, Kroos, Asensio, Morata, Isco, and Danilo. And then, of course, coached by old Zinedine Zidane. It's a fun team to root for. I will say that. Uh, all right. From the inbox. What's that to me over and over on the Joe Rogan podcast is that John Jones's use of what happened to me and what I've been through. This is his quoting, not me. Uh, this would indicate to me that he hasn't completely owned up to the reality that these negative things in his life were his fault. Nobody force-fed him alcohol or generic Cialis. Uh, and someone put a gif of like Mark Coleman shoving Joe Rogan. I don't even understand what that is. Yeah, I got that sense too. Don't you guys, like, 
let me ask you a question. Just be honest with me, please. Just please be honest for just one moment in time. No one else is looking. It's just you and me right here for just a second, okay? Aren't you tired of caring about whether or not John Jones, like, recognizes his mistake? Now, I'm not saying that, like, if forced to ask, hey, if someone's done something wrong, shouldn't they own up to it? Of course. A thousand times, of course. How many years are we going to ask this question before we're just like, all right, man, whatever, dude. Like, I can't, I can't pretend to keep caring. I can't. I can't. Oh, John Jones needs to answer for his mistakes. Man, let, let, let law enforcement figure it out, man. Let you side of figure it out, man. We'll write the story when it's done. I'm tired. I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. I'm tired of being like John Jones's older brother. It feels gross at this point, honestly. You know, I mean, I mean, the guy wrecked his Bentley and didn't learn. And then he had the whole issue with he's in cuffs with drunk driving, hitting the pregnant ladies and running from the scene of the car and, all, and the crime. And then he and then he has the he's, he's the guy's taking gas station dick pills. Like, aren't you tired of being his older brother? I know I am. Either he's going to figure it out or he is not going to figure it out. And we can write the tale, uh, the morality play later on down the road. But for right now, everyone's like, I didn't notice that he, he learned anything. Me neither. Maybe he's just not, maybe he's not gonna, maybe he's not gonna, maybe he's not that guy, but like from one person to another, aren't you tired of being his big brother? I am sick of it. What I think about it and what you think about it. So does it matter every time? In fact, John, John talks about it. Like he does mention the fans and stuff, you know, but it's always like all of the people down around me and, and, and whatever. He never really, I don't, I don't. I don't get the sense that like the wider world's pressure is what matters to him. And in some ways that's good. And and maybe he has figured it out. Maybe these are just words and we're mis- you know, we're not, we're not reading them properly, but like on some level I am just f- sick of talking about what John Jones should and shouldn't do. Let him figure it out, man. Or let him not figure it out. And I hope he does, of course, right? You know, we all do. But like, let's let's stop being his parent. Let's stop. You know, I'm not saying we have to give into it or something. Um, but I just I just don't care. I mean, I care, but I just can't care like uh, in the way that we have been anyway. You know, I can care a little bit. You know, I oh, hope he gets together. You know, but everyone wants to like weep and have this gnashing of teeth over it. And I'm how many times are you going to do that, man? How many times are you going to invest that kind of emotional energy in a guy who is learning the hard way in real time before all of us? Which, by the way, is not fair for. Like, I mean, life. I mean, life's been been good to John Jones. Let's not let's not lie. But you know, the truth is, and I made this point on my radio show too. This is the one thing I'll say in John's defense. Like, there is no defense of driving drunk, man. Like, it's indefensible. And there is no defense of, um, you know, hitting a woman and running from the scene of the accident. Like, these are all, uh, you know, I don't use the word loosely. These are despicable things. But the truth is, a lot of us have done despicable things in life. Now, I've never done quite that level, but I've had friends who've had DUIs. And they turn out to be totally successful people. Um, my point being is this. I, I don't speak for the women who might be watching this or might hear this. Maybe you have a different perspective on this. But for a young guy in his 20s, for any guy in his 20s, you better be glad that the world wasn't watching you. You better count your lucky stars because I know I made a ton of personal and professional mistakes in my 20s. 
like a jack ass, but I wasn't forced to be held account for it in front of the world. Now I've never been arrested. I don't know anything like that, but like you don't have to be arrested to to f up your life or f up someone else's life. Um, if you had the luxury of not having the world watch you as a young man in your twenties, drink through bars and engage in God knows what kind of behavior. And I was in the military too, man. I have seen some things. <laughs> Golly. Uh, I am, I am blessed that I didn't have that happen to me. And if you didn't have it happen to you and you partied pretty hard in your twenties, you are lucky. You're lucky. Um, that's just a fact. Again, I'm sure some of you are like, well, I partied in my twenties. I didn't do anything like that. Good on you. Great. But I'm just saying, if you're a guy and you're, let's say in your mid thirties, you know, this, you were a moron in your twenties who knew nothing about the world, who knew frankly, nothing about himself. You, you in all likelihood, or at least a strong likelihood, don't have nearly the level of professional success, financial management, sort of life stability that you have uh, now. You didn't have that in your 20s at all, even close. And I know I certainly didn't. There was a while I was aimless and reckless and um, going nowhere with my life, and I somehow managed to turn it all around. But I think, and I'm like, you know, look, I've never done some of the things that John has done. Okay, categorically, I've never done it. But I wasn't a millionaire in my 20s. Jesus, I was broke in my 20s. And I made countless personal mistakes. Um, but I got it together in my 30s. Right? I kind of fit right at like right around the age John is now, right around like 28, 29, it began to dawn on me like there's some things I can do that can fix my life. And I sort of got into them. But um, we'll see if John does. Maybe he won't. I don't know, man. I'm not his big brother anymore. Oof, that's a long ass question. Let's go ahead and go to oh, here's a quick one. MMA Media Union. You hinted saying stay tuned when asked about an MMA Media Union on your live chat a while back. Any updates to this? I wish there were, but I'm afraid there isn't. Can MMA Media not get together like Steve Cofield said? They can. MMA Media often say fighters need to stand together, yet they themselves can't unite to form a union on their own. Um, heretofore, that has certainly been the case. All right, let's go to um, the the questions here on Twitter, on the Twitter machine. Uh, do you still talk to Craig Carton? I text him occasionally. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, so yeah, I do text him occasionally. And uh, I know MMA fans have a very different opinion of him, but I owe a lot to Craig Carton. I owe a quite a bit to him and i have a very i have very nice things to say about him so but i can understand if you don't i'm not mad at it all right people judging john jones would have been dead already if they had his money in their 20s probably some truth to that as well uh any word on miles jury i reached out to him uh, a couple of weeks ago and never heard back so i don't know what the answer to that is thoughts on korean zombie return can't wait. I don't know if they're going to sell out of that as, that as their main event, but uh, Korean Superboy versus Cub Swanson prediction. I like the Korean Superboy. Top three worst movies. Come on, guys. Um, why doesn't the UFC market their black fighters to the urban markets? That's why UFC 201 wasn't bigger. That's been a common argument. Um, 
That's a common argument and a common complaint. I generally don't think they're very good at African-American outreach. Uh, I'm not sure what the answer for that is. If it's an internal issue, if it's a strategic issue, if it's a willingness among the people who hold the keys to that kingdom not being interested, it's not It's not altogether clear to me what the answer there is. They haven't found, uh, to, my, to my knowledge, and if... If I've got this wrong, by all means, correct me. To my knowledge, there hasn't been an African-American fighter who has, in UFC, who has captured that audience in like the same way that a Floyd Mayweather has, or even like in his prime, like a Zab Judah has. There just hasn't been that guy. And I don't quite know what the answer to that is. I've got some theories, but they're all pretty cockamamie. Uh, quote, she can just cut some muscle talking about cyborg, is the yellow mustard of things MMA fans can say. Yes, it is. By the way, did you see who endorsed my yellow mustard uh, irrational rantings? Pete Rubish, American powerlifter, who did 720 uh, on a pause squat at only 240 pounds. There you go. That's who's backing me up. Who's backing you up, yellow mustard eaters? Nobody. Oh, Steve Martin. Steve Martin's backing you up. Enjoy that. I got Pete Rubish. I win. Um, would you ever be interested in building your own studio? Your YouTube page is aching for more content. Yeah, I'm working on it every day. I, this is my upstairs. You can't see it, but I'm slowly building something. How fast it's going to go, I don't know. Oh, and by the way, I know Jeremy Botter thinks this is all some Pizzagate ruse. Uh, found a seller for the t-shirt. I worked that out. I'm telling you, it's coming. Like, super soon. Um... With the UFC keen to recoup money from the $4 billion sale, is there a fear they will take more from Invicta? No, they need Invicta. Invicta is only around, well, I won't say only around, it's largely around because the UFC needs organizations like that to develop women and prospects and fighters. Um, they're, they're frankly essential. Many Norwegian are looking forward to Emil Valhalla, Emil Meek, Debut at UFC 206. Do you have any prediction? Yeah, he's taking on um, Jordan Meehan. That's one of the fights I actually don't know who to pick on that one. That, that one could go either way. Really could. Uh, UFC preferred... Oh, that was a long question. If Aldo beats the winner of Max Pettis and goes up to 155, as he said he plans to, what are the odds on a Connor rematch? I don't know that I have a number, but... I'd say good. I'd say good. Will you be in Toronto for UFC 206? No, I will not. And what do you think of the odds of Lando Venata taking performance of the night? High. What's worse, people booing Ryan Hall or John Jones' dick pill defense? John Jones' dick pill defense. I like the way Ryan Hall fights. I have no problem with it. However, and you might find this crazy since I police people eating yellow mustard, I actually don't mind if people don't like the way Ryan Hall fights. Like, it doesn't bother me. Like, if it, you watch it and you're like, this is not for me. Okay, that's fine. I don't have an issue with that. That's that's that's, that's like a perfectly reasonable thing to say. It's not something I agree with, but I don't. I'm not going to lose my mind over it or something. Like uh, you don't like it. Okay, fair enough. Um, I I I think that the answer is number one. If he was just flopping to the ground, and that's all he was doing, well, Gray Maynard would have followed him and pounded on him. But that's not what he was doing. He was changing the dynamic of the fight. 
And Gray Maynard had no answer for that. And then if it wasn't tuning, well, I mean, he wasn't like crushing him on the feet, but Ryan Hall got the better on the feet by a pretty wide margin. If that hadn't been the case, then I would be like, well, might be a different argument. But here's the fact of the matter. He did get the better of him on the feet, and Gray Maynard assiduously avoided the ground because he knew he was outmatched there, or at least he thought he was outmatched there. But even then, in the third round, like you're losing, do something. Uh, and the fact of the matter is guys like Ryan Hall who take advantage of the you know, they, 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 who have this sort of their own way of competing, you want to allow that. You want to allow wide latitude in how guys want to compete because on the one hand, it may create a guy like Ryan Hall who you may or may not like in terms of his style of competition. But on the other hand, it's going to create for some other kinds of sort of interesting or creative or different ways of, of exploring how to pursue a fight. And I think we want to allow for that. So that's why I don't feel like if people don't like it, okay, that's fine. Uh, okay. But being like something should be done about it. What do you want me to do? Like you want, you want to have that creativity, that wide latitude, because that will ultimately foster a healthier environment and a more interesting environment, the ways in which fights are fought. And lastly, I would say if you're really worried about it and he turns into like the next John Fitch where he's doing this to all the guys, there probably will be a consequence. If he loses once, maybe the UFC cuts him or something like I'm not advocating for that, but like what the fan base ultimately decides and likes and, and doesn't like has a pretty strong effect on what the UFC does and doesn't do. Johnny Hendricks did not have a good year. Yeah, let's look at Johnny Hendricks's year real quick because you're right. He did not have an awesome year. Let's see. Old Johnny. Johnny Hendricks. Here is Johnny Hendricks' 2016. He lost to Stephen Thompson and then he lost to Kelvin Gastelum. Yep, that's not a good one. That is definitely not a good one. Um, have you told Habib his fight won't be for the belt? No, I don't have daily conversations with him. Faber had a pretty rough year. Let's look at his year. I'm looking to see someone had like three losses. Let's see what Uriah had. Uriah Faber. Here's Uriah Faber 2016. He lost to Dominic Cruz and then lost to Jimmy Rivera. Not the worst, not the worst year ever. Um, true or false Dominic Cruz's trash talk is equal to McGregor just a tick underneath it was Dillashaw tricked signing a new contract I have no idea who wins Connor versus Floyd in a kickboxing match Connor Connor would just leg kick him to death would Ryan Hall's BJJ be an issue for Jose Aldo in MMA BJJ or is Aldo's BJJ good enough to neutralize him it depends what you mean aldo is really good at avoiding these kinds of entanglements too like do you mean if he wanted to grapple with ryan like he thought he had a chance of beating him on the floor no i think ryan is much better um but especially in pure bjj but uh in mma jose might have enough to neutralize it and then beat him up with ground and pound you never know right so it depends what you mean, but like when you think of jujitsu and MMA, you have to think of what Demi and Maya does, which is he forces you to compete on jujitsu terms. He forces it on you, and of course, that's where he has the advantage. Um, how are you going to force Jose Aldo to grapple with you if he doesn't want to grapple with you? He's a master at takedown defense and, and avoiding entanglements. I'll just keep that in mind. 
Where is there any legitimate criticism of his dominant performance against a dangerous opponent? Who are you talking about? Oh, Hall dominated every round against Maynard, landed multiple head kicks in all rounds, had Maynard scared. He was not, well, scared is a strong word. Where is there any legitimate criticism of his dominant performance against a dangerous opponent? Uh, I don't, I think I would point you in the direction of Jonathan Snowden. Uh, again, I don't agree with his assessment, but he has been pretty vocal about not liking it and thinking it's bad for MMA. So, um, and I, I think he is entitled to have that opinion. Thoughts on Nick Diaz versus Gamebred for his first fight back. Love it. Love it. Who's the biggest tool in MMA? <laughs> oh, there are a number of choices to pick from there, boy. Um, on Let's see. On the Fight Companion, Brendan Schaub told Joe Rogan he is a member of Double M AAA and they have 200-plus UFC fighters. Uh, I have not heard that, but that, that may be, in fact, true. It's funny that Dana White uses the UFC podcast to spew UFC propaganda with no media asking real questions. Uh, well, that's been the case for a while. Like when he goes on ESPN, they kind of ask him tough questions, but not really. And when he goes on Colin Coward, they don't ask him any tough questions. Um, he doesn't go on, maybe Landsberg does, Michael Landsberg, but he doesn't typically go on places that do that anymore. Um, but here's the truth. Like, I don't even mind that he is out there promoting the, the the brand's interests. I don't that doesn't bother me at all. Oh, I shouldn't say at all. But in, in in theory, it doesn't bother me much. I think the only thing is now people are sort of wise to what it is, and there should be a formal response to it that doesn't involve the media. Like for a long time, we were both acting as his conduit and the people who had to like criticize him for it rather than there being other forces out there in a formal sense. In other words, if Roger Goodell does something, you can imagine the NFLPA is going to say something about it forcefully. And then the media can sort of weigh in on that. That, that really is where the battle should be had. It shouldn't be media versus double M triple a media versus Dana white. It should be those other parties. And then the media observing it and, you know, weighing in on it, of course, as well. But, it's not our job to promote UFC. It's not our job to be anti-UFC. It's not our job to promote a fighters union. It's not our job to be anti-fighters union. Um, but we kind of get put in these roles because of the vacuum created from a lack of uh, the sort of thinned out, not well, frankly, non-existent organizational structure that MMA is built on. Luke, did you see Chisora? I'm assuming this is Derek Chisora throwing a table at an opponent at a presser. Did not. Um, with the talk of a women's featherweight division, what is the possibility of a women's flyweight division? Well, there already is one in Bellator. You should watch it. It's good. Did the UFC sell as high as it did partially because of the way in which they, they pay fighters? And he put partially in all caps, probably. And everyone talks about like, man, man, they're worth $4.2 billion. You see this? You know, they've been warned about that loan, not once, but twice by regulators for it being a uh, a sketchy loan, to put it mildly, that is a l way too highly uh, incorporating of debt. Um, maybe the end that means nothing, but I would keep your eye on that. Because they purchased something, an extraordinary amount of high debt financing, 
and now they need to finance it. They need to pay that back. And uh, that just requires some certain baseline numbers that have to be hit. Uh, that's semi-ish worrying some. Fantasy fight. Aldo versus RDA. Probably RDA. Aldo versus Barboza. These guys are just too big for him. Rumble versus Duffy. I would take Rumble. Mayor versus Verdum. EBI rules. Verdum. Verdum would have his way with him. Dude, Verdum is a multiple-time world champ. <laughs> uh, in the gi, without the gi. Verdum's level of jiu-jitsu is way above Frank Mears. Way above. Sarah versus Woodley. Woodley. Yellow Mustard asks, where does your hatred of me come from? Uh, not having the palate of a toddler. Thoughts on Gio Martinez tapping Eddie Cummins out on Sunday. Yeah, I saw this. It was actually pretty well done. The EBI broadcast looked really good um, on Fight Pass. Good job by TJ DeSantis, by the way, who I think has really grown into that role. Um, it looks to me like these guys are all pretty competitive. There was a bit of a honey hole defense where, if you guys don't watch a lot, this is going to be too esoteric, where Martinez just holds on to his own foot. Um, and there really was no answer for that. So it is, this is, to me, like, very innovative in the grappling context. But, like, I don't know how you can promote, like, this is the, this is, like, I don't know what 10th Planet's claim to fame is anymore because they're definitely innovative in the grappling space. There's just no two ways about it. And their guys are getting better and better and better, and they're being more competitive with each passing year. Fair. Like, Gio Martinez was at the last ADCC, and he did pretty well in the end, you know? Um, but I don't know how that could possibly... I don't know what any of that has to do with MMA. What, I thought the initial thing was like, let's create a guard playing system that works for MMA. And to some extent, that's true. But I don't see it as like... It still seems to me like traditional guard versus pass jiu-jitsu, keenly applied, works just fine for MMA. Um, some guys like Ben Saunders are really going to go after it. Guys like Tony Ferguson are really going to go after it. But these are fairly minimal. I don't quite understand what... like If 10th Planet had to claim like what is better about their jiu-jitsu, again, not like better, oh, we're better than Gracie Baja. I don't mean in that sense, but I mean, like, what is the value add that they offer? Um, that's quite. That's not quite clear to me. Just to say it's not good. It's obviously good, but I just don't quite understand certain things. Uh, any early analysis on Grasso versus Herrig? I think is going to tear up, but we'll see. Last thing, what is your Christmas Day meal? Uh, bourbon. There you go. All right. I have to go. I appreciate everyone watching. If you have any questions, if I didn't get to anything, luke.thomas.espionation.com. I really appreciate you guys watching. Um, tune in for the Luke Thomas Show, 4 p.m. today. I'm going to have uh, a bunch of donks. I'm going to have uh, Randy Couture in studio. I'm going to have uh, Nate Quarry in studio and Carlos Newton and a bunch of other guys. They're going to all be here in D.C., so they're going to be in studio. So check that out, SiriusXM93. Uh, give this video a like. Tell people about this podcast. Stay tuned for more stuff on MMA fighting. We're, we're in Toronto. I think Chuck and Ariel are there. So it's the half of the A-team. You guys are all set. I'll be back next week. Thank you guys so much for watching. Until then, stay frosty.